The Trader Cobb Crypto Show, talking business in blockchain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Trader Cobb Crypto Podcast, where I have with me some um, breaking bank royalty. And we're going to get into exactly what I mean by that in just a minute, but it's Brett King. Now, he is the founder and executive chairman of Movin, which is an online banking or personalized banking application to help you keep an eye on everything that's going on within your finances. And it is an absolute behemoth. So, Brett, thank you for being on the show. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. And uh, thanks for letting me join all the way from New York City, baby. Yeah, New York City, but ladies and gentlemen, most of you, or I know a lot of you are Australians, so we've got a lot of Australians in the audience, um, you'll actually note that after a long, long period of time, Brett here still has his Australian accent. Well done for that, mate. Well done for that. We are still relatively unique and you still have that accent, so that's good for you. It, it, it does work for me. My, my speaker agent, he reckons I probably make about 15% a year more cash because of the... the the accent, so I keep it. But um, you know, I did notice that uh, I, when I'm with an Aussie talking, it definitely comes, comes out. out more. Because I lived in Hong Kong for seven years and Dubai for almost five years, and in those two markets where English is a second language, you do tend to see the you know the accent does get a bit thinner because yeah. you you have to articulate a bit more clearly, and you lose a lot of the idioms. You know, so a lot of the uh, the slang, you know, uh, yeah. for example, I remember when I was in Hong Kong and I came to the office one day and someone said, you don't look so good. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm feeling a bit crook. And they're like, <laughs> you're feeling like a thief. You know, they didn't, didn't get the nuance. So, you know, so you have to you eliminate some of those uh, idioms from the language over time. Well, I've been there, done that with my time away as well. You notice when you're over there, they say you've got the thickest Australian accent I've ever heard. And then when you come back home, they go, you're English. But, but anyway. Yeah. And my auntie always says, you sound so posh because I've lost my accent. But <laughs> Yeah, I got that when I got back as well. Now, look, I want to get into what you've created here because it's, um, it's no small feat. But before we go into moving, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to creating this particular business? Uh, well, I, you know, I started my career in Australia as a bike ripper, as a programmer, um, many moons ago. And, but I, I sort of had that unique, uh, skill, um, of being able to communicate between business people and technologists, which is, uh, has, has done me well throughout the career. I then in, uh, 99, I moved to Hong Kong at the time I head up, I headed up Deloitte business practice in Asia. Uh, I was specialising in financial services and banking as a as an industry, you know, and had had a ton of experience in that. But really, was doing the e push. So I worked on the first stock trading platform called Two Cube in uh, Hong Kong at the time. I launched a bunch of e banking internet banking initiatives, um, you know, for uh, major players in the region. Did the first online credit card, oh, wow. you know, for for uh, Citibank, you know, in the region, et cetera. So, you know, worked on a lot of that really grassroots uh, uh, digital stuff. Then uh, 2005, I wrote a report for HSBC on the next 15, 20 years. It was entitled HSBC 2.0. And that ended up becoming sort of the uh, the skeleton of what became the first book, Bank 2.0, um, which you're, you know, um, I've got some artwork up on the wall for. That was my first book and it went off and, and did well. And then um, as I was on the book tour, 
doing the book signing for Bank Two. I was actually in LA at a, a networking breakfast held by this uh, radio personality media guy out there called Ken Ratowski. And uh, I, I was doing the book signing and people were asking me about what does a bank account of the future look like? And I was describing it. And there was a guy there from a venture capital organization, Clearstone Ventures, his name William Quigley. And he was like, yeah, but banks aren't going to do this. So who's going to do it? And, you know, literally two hours after that networking session, I went home and registered the domain for Moving Bank. Um, well, it's interesting how these things come about. They, they hit you in the yeah. face sometimes. And uh, sometimes you don't realize what you're about to sort of embark on, do you? They just sort of... Exactly. So yeah, you so, were on a bank term. When, when was that? When was it that you... I know so you, I, you... I finished writing Bank 2.0 on Christmas Day 2009. 2009. Wow. Uh, so I'd just come back from Dubai. I was spending some time between Australia and Hong Kong at the time before I moved to the US in 2010. The book actually came out in April 2010, and I just did my sixth book, um, Bank 4.0, which was obviously you know one of the sequels to Bank 2, and that came out in December in the US, a bit earlier in, in, in sort of the rest of the world. And then 2015, you know, the most successful book I've done previously was actually sort of a full futurist book called Augmented Life in the Smart Lane. So that Augmented was- Augmented uh, Life in the Smart Lane. Yeah, um, so augmented was the title. Then yeah, you're yeah. 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Exactly. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. You got, you but that's, got that's to been get the creative on that one. Huh? You got some help on that title, didn't you? Yeah, that's the bread and butter, though. Um, <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, look, one thing I want to ask you, we're going to get into that futurist stuff because I'm really, I'm really interested in it. I really, really am. I want to know how you sort of title yourself as being a futurist and what it means and how you do it. But before we do that, I mean, with that, with moving, you, you have really been, oh, I'm going to do it making moves i was going to say moving but i couldn't i wasn't going to go that bad i do have two kids so i am allowed to make bad dad jokes but that would have just been next you, you could have done the uh themes you know the song out of uh you know what is it i oh, can't forget now you, you like to move and move oh, i was gonna <laughs> that was on the tip of my tongue my kids love that song <laughs> but you've been busy and you've got i mean how many users have you got across the app now so we got uh, in, in the US where we operate as a bank, um, direct to consumer with our own debit card and so forth. You know, we, we have a quarter of a million you know, app users there. Some of them have debit cards. Some of them use it for aggregation, sort of like a PFM type tool. The behavior sort of differs. Some use it as their only bank account. Then uh, we have licensed our technology to other banks around the world. So Westpac in New Zealand, TD Canada, um, Yandex Money, which is sort of PayPal in Russia, BCA, Bank Central Asia in Indonesia, et cetera. Um, and so we're rolling out right now. We're in seven geographies. Uh, we're rolling out um, you know, to about 70 million users right now um, in those different geographies. So, and we've got two new geographies coming online over the next uh, you know, 60 to 90 days. That's absolutely insane. And I mean, did you find that traction with, with the, uh, with the app and the bank and, and, and the whole business? Did, did you find it was um, instantly successful? I mean, you do hear these stories, but most of the time in startup land, it's usually, you know, more often than not, you're just about to fall over before you actually get up. Um, you know, did you find instant success or did it take some time? No, definitely. Look, definitely took time. Um, you know, when we launched, we were only, 
the second sort of challenger bank in the world at the time when we launched and um, raising money for Ooh, yeah. a challenger bank in those days was tough because, you know, you, you'd go out to Silicon Valley and they'd say, yeah, we're looking for the Facebook of banking and we want to really see something that's going to have a billion users. And we're like, do you guys understand um, a about regulation in the financial services industry. You need a banking license. Oh, no, no, we don't think, you know. So they, they didn't get that. So they, they they were sort of looking for that sort of scalability. Um, and the the guys that would have invested in banks, you know, they weren't, re- they didn't really see the fintech opportunity. So it was a little early. Um, but we, you know, we did a bunch of firsts. You know, we were the first uh, app to uh, allow you to sign up for a bank account in an app. We were the first uh, app uh, to introduce a contactless uh, capability. This was prior to Apple Pay and Samsung Pay. We we actually issued people with contactless stickers they could put on the back of their smartphone and stuff. So, you know, we, we broke some ground. But um, I can tell you, um, leading up to the Series A, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I know, you know, the, the sort of whole team took... Uh, you know, we, we paused our salaries for a few weeks before the cash came into the bank. And then um, when we did, we did a commercial deal with TD in 20, on Christmas Day 2016, we actually received the, the cash or the day after. Um, and, you know, huge support from them. They've been a really strategic partner for us. But I think we, you know, our, our monthly burn at the time was... Um, about 600k a, a month, and uh, I think we had 16,000 left in the bank account when the the first tranche of 12 million bucks hit from TD. So, and oh. that was and that was with a bridge bridge with some bridge financing financing we had in place as well. So, you know, look, um, anyone who tells you that uh, startup life, entrepreneurial life, is easier, um, you know, is lying. Yeah, you know, and it's those moments where I guess it's make or break. You know, I know you hear stories from Richard Branson and Elon Musk uh, telling similar stories about uh, you know the business uh, moments away from imminent failure, and then suddenly cash coming in. And so I certainly uh, can identify with that. Well, um, you know what? It, it's it's great to hear because it, it's it's really good to hear those stories from a point for which you know being an entrepreneur and having startup or a startup or startups. It is really tough. And I mean, they've really glamorized it a lot these days. Um, you know, no one talks about failure. Glamorize the failure though. That, right? That's what I mean. No one talks about <laughs> failure. They always talk about the success, but it's the failure that leads to the success. And if mm. you don't fail and you don't like, you know, if you're not on death's door, sometimes that's where your most brilliant ideas come from or, or something drops in that you think, oh, you know, someone's been telling me that, but now I can totally see how that makes sense and you can pivot. And that's another very sexy word in startup land too, isn't it? Pivot. Everyone yeah. wants to. Well, we did. We pivoted. I mean, the the uh, licensing of our tech to other banks was a pivot. Um, you know, so, um, but we still kept the original business um, and that's plugged along quite nicely. But yeah, um, yeah we, we, we had to, we had to go after revenue however we could in, in those early days. That's it. So the little boys and little girls that are listening out there. If you want to be an entrepreneur, certainly go for it, but do it when you're young <laughs> because otherwise, <laughs> look, you've got two right here. If you're watching this, look at our heads. Look at our heads, okay? There's a reason for this. There is a reason, and it's not genes, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Okay, look, so you've, um, you're also a futurist, which we'll touch in in a second. One thing I also find fascinating as far as breaking ground goes is that you are the first ever 
fintech podcast called Breaking Banks, right? You're the, back in 2013, you you were way ahead. So I can totally vouch for you being a futurist because there wasn't a lot of people that were sort of seeing uh, the the audio space developing in the way that it has done at that time. Yeah, in fact, we you know we launched the podcast. I think there was a few other, you know, like Dave Birch, who's uh, with Consult Hyperion. Dave had a, a podcast he did sort of um, intermittently, um, but we were the first regular weekly fintech podcast. And then, of course, six months after that, we launched on radio in the AM band in the US. And so we, you know, WVNJ eleven sixty and WGCH fourteen ninety and a few other AM stations where we syndicated. So you know, we actually became the first fintech radio show wow. globally as well. Um, and so we're in 180 countries now through through podcast um, with about six and a half million unique listeners. Um, so it's, it's but, uh, you know, uh, even that, um, you know, when, when Movin started to kick off, um, I'd been writing blogs every week and I just re- started running out of time. So my idea with the podcast was actually I could just do an hour a week on the microphone and it will save me time. Um, and so that's how I originally thought about it. Of course, it became this whole beast of its own, right? Well, trust me, I'm very aware of how uh, how they work, mate. We started. I was told yesterday that I started the podcast yesterday. So happy birthday to the Trader Cobb Crypto Podcast. It's a full one year old now, and I mean, we we were only in it for a couple of months, th- two or three months, and we were uh, as I was flying, jumping on our planes in New York for the consensus event for blockchain and crypto assets. Yep. Um, we were number one in the US business category, um, which is that's great. That's as big as like I mean, this is as far up as a podcast can get, really. Globally, yeah, yeah. Uh, with yeah, yeah exactly. on, on it, and um, I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, here I am interviewing Joe LeBen, who's the, one of the founders of. The oh, I know Joe. Uh, Joe's been on my show a number of times. Joe's a good guy. Um, yeah, he's you know, a really good guy. On the show as well, but uh, um, actually, last time I interviewed Joe was actually in Sydney at Cybos last year. Um, no, I, I, I got him at Sydney, yeah, last year as well for yeah. uh, one of his events here with um, Consensus Events. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, a good guy. I, I understand how quickly these things can take off, and uh, I always say, for, for me, I'm I'm probably similar to you in the sense that I'm I'm a communicator. I'm I'm, I'm somebody who's who can communicate things, and the reason we've had success, not just in the podcast, is that we can break things down that might seem really complex and deliver them in an, e- an easy to understand way for the average consumer, shall we say. Um, and, you know, writing pieces for me, I, I write how I speak. So my business partner said to me at the time, well, why don't you just do a podcast? And I said, you know, I'd love that. That would be good. One take. Let's just get it done. Boom, boom, boom. I'm really busy all the time. As you know, everyone's always busy all the time. I would love to see my family more often. So if I can save myself 15 minutes by talking. Yep. Would. And you've got a great face for podcasts, man. <laughs> Very much like yours, maybe a couple of years younger than you. So, look, let's touch now on um, on Futurist and tie that in with the Breaking Banks podcast. And guys, you got to listen to it. Have jump on board, get stuck into it. But I'm, um, I mean, I'm here in this uh, digital blockchain, you know, digital currency space, or whatever you call it, digital distributed ledger technology, digital assets, whatnot. Now, if you're talking about a show called Breaking Banks, um, and, and you're a futurist. I'd love to hear your take on um, on the future of two things. One is digital asset and the other being Bitcoin. Obviously, when I started breaking banks and even when I wrote Bank 2.0, I wrote about Bitcoin, but, um, you know, the whole DLT stuff was still fairly new. Um, it was certainly starting to gain 
gain some traction. Um, uh, you'll, you'll laugh at this. I had Charlie Shrem on the show <laughs> um, the day before he went uh, in for his uh, enforced holiday. Oh, wow. Um, came into the studio and, and um, very graciously uh, gave me some time. That same day as he came into the studio, uh, HSBC had done this massive uh, deal, a $1.7 billion fine for uh, anti-money laundering. Uh, um, money laundering you know? And so it was sort of really uh, bittersweet. Um, but um, I met Charlie, you know, in the New York community probably uh, early 2011, you know, Bitcoin was still very raw back then. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but, but, of course, a lot has happened to mature the sector. Uh, um, you know, we've had the rise of the token stuff that, that blew up in a huge way. It's yeah. now normalized a little bit. But ultimately, I think if you look at crypto, um, you know, in respect to currencies, and we'll leave that away from sort of the database evolution. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Um, it, 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 really what it's about, I think, is the fact that um, the, the markets as a whole are shifting from physical value chains, physical assets, uh, you know, physical commodities as the, the core underpinning to now we're seeing the emergence of digital markets and digital value exchange. And, and part of that is actually, I think, um, going to be a fundamental shift in basic economics 101 supply and demand curve. Because in a world where you have AI-driven ecosystems, mm. um, you know, the, the old supply and demand curve doesn't work. Because if you've got an AI, um, once that AI kicks in, then essentially, with the exception of maybe processor cycles, um, you know, you, you can re reach infinite demand. Um, with that same supply capability with the AI. And so you don't generate increased labor participation as a result of increased demand. And that's a, a, a core shift. So as that occurs, the market's going to have to look for value in different ways. And I think that's where we're looking for digitization of assets, digitization of commodities, data as a... Um, uh, you know, as a, as a core value proposition, for example, and the ability to sort of process that data, that that's all part of this new um, digital market that is essentially emerging. And so what we saw with the tokens is very similar to what occurred after the South Sea bubble, um, you know, with the formation of stock markets and the formalization of that. So it, it, it does have parallels. To be a futurist, you know, you have to really be a good student of history because you have to see how people have uh, responded to these things in the past and yeah. try and find those same um, analogies. And, and that's really what I take away from it is that very similar to what we saw with the foundation of the formal financial markets and, and um, you know, the way we valued companies in the past and the, and the way the commodities markets were created, you know, we see the same occurring right now in the digital space. And do you see it, I mean, look, staying with currencies for the second, because I thank you for that. That's a very well broken down. It's very clear that you are a communicator. Uh, it's a very clear breakdown as to what the two different, um, I guess there's a fork in there. there. There's currency and then there's other technology that sort of branches off that um, with the databanks and whatnot. So, I mean, Bitcoin, of course, it has had a, um, a head start, okay? It, it's the big dog. It, it is the biggest market capitalization, the most frequently used, the most frequently understood, okay, globally. So, 
Do you think that Bitcoin, if you're looking at it as a, as a startup, does it have a first mover advantage in the currency space or do you think it still leaves a lot to be desired and, and anything can be taken over if it falls asleep? We saw that with like the taxis, you know, with Uber coming through. But what do you think on that? Well, the, the biggest, you know, when Bitcoin came out, uh, I, I'm looking this up as, as we're speaking. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, John Matonis, that's right. Uh, speaking to John about this, uh, you know, at the time, and he, he was, um, you know, the founding director of the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, and, uh, you know, I was saying to him uh, about if you're trying to replace currency, I get Bitcoin's value. You know, the value exchange proposition. If you look at the formation of physical currency, that was largely driven by the need to create a standardized value exchange by geography. But we live in a world today where value exchange needs to be global, needs to be at the speed of light on the internet and so forth. So it's fairly obvious if it wasn't Bitcoin, it would have been something like Bitcoin that emerged. But, you know, John was talking to me about, you know, uh, the sort of devaluation of currencies and the way you know, Bitcoin would be designed and moving to the right side of the uh, decimal point and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the, the problem with Bitcoin from a design perspective was that uh, people kept talking about the million dollar Bitcoin and that produced speculation. Yeah. And so yeah. it then turned into a digital asset instead of a currency because people were holding the money instead of using it. So it was acting more like gold than it was a US dollar. Um, And so that, I think, is a design flaw. Um, Now, you might have a stage where you get to some sort of normalization in terms of value where then people say, well, we could use Bitcoin as a currency again. Um, And I think that, you know, I, I would love to see that happen. But probably what happens next is that, you know, um, Bitcoin 2.0, whatever that's going to be, and I don't think it's Ethereum, um, but, um, and, and I, you know, I, I think what's happening at EOS is interesting, things like that, but if you're going to start again from scratch, using the lessons we've learned from Bitcoin, you would really focus on utility. You would say, how do you get a cryptocurrency that, you know, where you can maximize utility, where people want to spend it, where people want to uh, use it as this underpinning of transactional activity? So any plans to have a move-in token? Uh, no, we looked at it, um, but in being a, um, you know, quote-unquote bank, in um, a you know the U.S. regulated market, just even um, you know custody is sort of still got a question mark over yeah. it, um, and so um, yeah, we we sort of we we are interested in it. Um, we did look definitely at a token, but for us to really build a utility token into Movin, given that we're dealing with financial transactions was, was a, a bit tougher than a non-related industry. Uh, my favourite token is actually probably um, uh, the Sun Exchange. I don't know if you, you heard of them, but they run a solar business. Um, they, you know, for every uh, kilowatt of energy they produce on the solar panels, they produce a, uh, a, a token. I think that's a great example of a, uh, a utility-based token that, yeah. that is, you know, is with really clearly defined value that doesn't confl- conflate it with, you know, like a, a securities uh, mechanism, right? 
Yeah, there's been a really big rise in that uh, in that sector in the uh, in the energy sector, renewables. Uh, obviously, you know we do have an energy issue definitely here in Australia. Just you know, it's basically price gouging. It's a monopoly. It's disgusting. Um, they know it's going to end, so they're making as much money as they possibly can, as fast as they possibly can, and they're going screw you all. Uh, we'll do what we want um, because you know. The gravy train is starting to come into the station, I think, as we do see the world sort of learning um, to be a little bit less stupid. I mean, I, I love David Attenborough's pieces. I have my kids watch him all the time. And at the end of his, um, the ocean one, I can't remember what it was called, Blue Planet, I think it was called. Mm. He said, never have we been at a time where we've had so much information uh, about the climate, knowing that we're affecting it, and never have we been at the time where we're in the position to actually make changes. And uh, it's up to us to make those changes. And I, 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 I get goosebumps when I watch him say that, sitting there next to my daughter thinking, you're the generation that you, know, you and us, and yeah. it's us. If we can't contain this and fix this, it's all over for you know, your kids. It's going to continually get worse. But, and we ask but, coal, is, but yeah. coal is good for humanity. No, no, I'm just joking. Um, just forgetting us <laughs> where we are. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Look, ultimately, right now, you have this, again, the digital asset thing. Mm. Um, you know, solar is much better place to um, be considered a digital asset, right? Um, okay, you've got to work out storage problems and so forth. Yeah. But um, the reality is solar is already the cheapest form of energy production, um, you know, available in the world. You know, it's, it's cheaper than all of the fossil fuels, natural gas, coal, unsubsidized solar. In 10 years, it's going to be one-tenth of the price, if not lower, than the cost of coal-based electricity. So how can an economy based on coal compete? It, it cannot. Oh, right? And so, you know, and, and the, you know, Australia is the perfect Oh. It's the perfect economy for solar. A, there's energy issues there. Um, you know, it, you, you, I mean, you, you're paying, what, 26 to 32 cents a kilowatt yep. hour for, yep. for energy in Australia. Yep. I mean, we're, we're seeing contracts written at one and a half cents right now for solar generation. I mean, it's already one twentieth of the price. Yeah. Um, you've got solar silica, so you could do solar, produ solar cell productions there. Um, you know, it, really, it, there's no excuse. There's, no. there's no excuse Poor for going down that that path um it, you know I, I i would i would invest in solar if you're listening <laughs> yeah well i mean there's a lot going on in adelaide of all places right yeah. now that's yeah, well, they are the forward yeah, thinking the, state elon musk got in there with with uh, the uh, the the storage um but there's some really interesting tech here's a futurist hat you know um in terms of storage mediums that are uh, emerging pretty rapidly now um molten salt um, which can generate, uh, yeah, yeah um, and ammonia-based storage systems and other things like that. So there is a lot of uh, dollars being um, thrown at that. You've also got some really interesting solar tech. Um, Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates have uh, worked on uh, solar panels that, in addition to generating en energy, extract clean water from the air. Um, using sort of the same tech, um, you know. So th there's there's incredible uh, leaps and bounds being made in this. China last year, you want to know why why um, you know it, it's a problem for Australia. China's pursuit of this versus coal. China last year installed 96 gigawatts of solar generation capacity. 
That is the equivalent of the entire install base of the United States in terms of solar. But it took the U.S. 45 years to get there. China did it in one year. So you know where the future is. If China is betting big on it like that, you know. And they've stopped all new coal plant production. And they've cut coal uh, purchases from uh, their biggest Australian mine here. And uh, the Australian government, I get this, this is how backward we are, okay? This is why you haven't come back. I get it. Uh, the Australian government has turned around and gone, hang on, we're just going to investigate whether that's legal or not. It's like, hang on. Because they said, look, we realise that there's problems in the climate, so we're going to sort of bullshit. You know, come on, let's cut the crap. You're doing it because it suits you, and that's cool. What suits you suits the planet. If it's in that realm, that's fine. And Australian government's now going, hang on, we're checking if that's illegal. It's like, come on, mate. You know, stop worrying about all this coal business that's going to die invest in your future not your next term and i think the issue is it's the short-term political mindset here in australia because we've had you know we've had so many prime ministers and leaders in the last eight years i've lost count of them no dude um i live in the u.s where donald trump is president true Uh, true i guess yeah well you haven't really yeah Yeah. i suppose And and climate change is a Chinese conspiracy, according yeah. to, to Trump. Okay, yeah. so yeah, okay, my Just, my government yeah. might be uh, well. Let's say collectively, well, government. yeah, I'll, I'll put you know, them in that bucket. You know, really, the US and and um, Australia are, are quite exceptional in respect to their denial, denial? of climate change at the institu- at the government level. Yeah, um, and it, I, I think um, in the future, it it will. Historically, um, it will be seen quite negatively, uh, unfortunately. Um, uh, but uh, this is the opportunity for the next generation. It absolutely the generation is. We are. Is. They need to be setting policy. They need to be involved in that. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's uh, where the change will come. Well, this is what I find so interesting and exciting about this digital asset space, okay? So there's two spaces that I, that I look into or was looking into at the time when we took this business on and started setting this up. One was gaming because gaming was taking control and blowing the whole world up, and it still is. It's an amazing economy. It's an amazing new sports realm. Um, I'm still blown away by it. And one of my good friends who ran a uh, startup out of Australia, he's now actually gone into the gaming sector. He, he'd been a professional, semi-professional gamer before. Um, but I feel fascinated that? by that. Sorry? Who's that? Uh, his name's Jamie Skeller. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, it ran a company called uh, Horizon State, uh, voting on the blockchain. No, I've been um, doing some work with a, com- a startup out of Sydney called PlayUp, and uh, they uh, they have a token um, which is geared. Their token is actually the play chip that they can use on the gaming platform. But they do sports betting. But one of the the fastest growing uh, um, use on the platform is actually. Um, uh, you know, the, the Twitch uh, betting and stuff like that. Yeah, the, that's huge. Yeah, yeah that's... The, the, the gaming gaming associated sponsorship and betting and all that other stuff that comes along with it is is huge. You know, kids don't sit down and watch motor racing like the Bathurst 500. They, nope. They'll sit down and watch a, uh, a Fortnite championship, yep. you know. It's, uh, it's, it's a massive business. And speaking of kids, you just hit my next segue on the head. Uh, normally my shows go for 20 minutes to half an hour, but this is going very well and I'm enjoying it. So 
bugger the rules. We're going to do what we want right here. But the final t- subject is to touch on this millennials point of thing. Because, um, I mean, that's the future, right? Let, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. You talked about the kids playing games. I mean, the kids I talked about before, the kids that are in crypto and, and, and blockchain, these are kids, kids, kids. Now, these kids are the kids of the, late, the later generation or the mid-generation baby boomer cycle, which is the first real apart from the industrial revolution, the first real step up of a middle class and wealth seemed not just in the higher echelon, the 1%, but that 1% grew out to a, you know, more people had access to money, education, growth, and, um, you know, prosperity. These are the kids of these people. Now they're short, they've got not much patience, they're pretty entitled and they can be a pain in the backside to employ. <laughs> but let me tell you one thing, they are the biggest uh, voting demographic moving forward right now. They're smart, they're powerful, they know how to use technology because they've had it in their hands since they were bloody born. So yeah. investing and being in business with this demographic seems to make perfect sense and you've got gaming, blockchain and cryptocurrency. Is that something that you sort of touch on as well? Uh, well, I talk about it in Augmented. I talk about the, uh, the Omega generation, the last generation. Um, in terms of this cycle of baby boomers, Gen X, and so forth. And uh, there's a great uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, quote which says, I don't know who, uh, who first discovered water, but it probably wasn't a fish. And, and the reason I, I use that is that kids don't think of digital as digital. It's yeah. water to them. It's just around them and part of it. And so they're much better placed to actually utilize this tech to think of these new paradigms and, and do this stuff because they don't have to get over the traditional way of doing things. Mm. Um, and so you've got a lot of real creativity coming um, out of this sector with these uh, millennials and the Gen Zs that come after them um, where their ideation process in terms of creation, their social collaboration, all of those things are quite different because of the way they've come into the world around digital. Now, we still have debates, you know, uh, you see it in the press all the time. Should our kids be allowed to use their devices yeah. all the time and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, and the, the reality is if you look at history and the way we've adapted to technologies, you know, you know, even the radio or TV or, or, or whatever it was, internet, um, smartphones. You know, there has never been an example where the older generation has been able to successfully dampen adoption of technology. There's in 250 years, we've not seen a single example of a company threatened by technology shifts survive unscathed. They either innovate or they're gone. Um, and so when you, you look at these technologies like crypto or, say, artificial intelligence, and we hear a lot of debate about what's the future going to be like, it's almost like we're debating whether or not artificial intelligence should be allowed to happen. And yet if you look at the historical precedents, there is no example of where we have stopped implementing yeah. a technology like this and sort of said, we've got to have a think about it. Normally what we do is we go full bore ahead because the capital markets drive that type yeah. of innovation. And then we start thinking about, oh, well, people are losing jobs because mm. of AI. What are we going to do now? You know? Yeah. Um, and so, um, and, and the rate of change is speeding up, of course. And so, um, but uh, I think um, if you tie all this in together, um, 
you can see this as hugely disruptive, but coming out of the other end of this, our kids go into a world that actually could be, you know, in, in 30, 40 years' time, very, very different place. Um, you, you're going to have uh, healthcare, education, um, you know, basic needs, basically zero cost to provide that. So, so you know, Diamandis calls this the age of abundance, you know, um, but where technology provides this capability where this is just accessible. Uh, you know, we're going to start developing technologies to geoengineer the planet and undo climate change. These could be massive social programs or massive infrastructure programs on a global basis, sort of like the, the New Deal, um, you know, after the Second World War, and we're talking about the Green New Deal in the US right now, but yeah. you know, it could be a global initiative. And so, when you start thinking about things like universal basic income as a construct that comes out of this technology unemployment as a result of AI, you know, that could be deployed in these massive social causes like, uh, you know, uh, undoing the damage of climate change. Um, so, uh, you know, there's so much potential for this generation. And the one thing I love about this generation is they, they're much more connected with each other Mm. Sure, there is some tribalism that comes out of social, but uh, yeah. I think they're much more socially aware uh, on a global basis, and they're 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 much they're, they're much less concerned about asset uh, capture than um, you know just having a great experience in life. And so I think, um, and a lot, you know, you'll hear a lot of baby boomers and Gen X say, yeah, but once they, you know, have to buy their own home and once they you know, start having kids, that's going to change. But I really hope it doesn't. I really hope that this next generation, particularly from a policy perspective, um, takes those lessons. In the live life generation. Exactly. And with that, I think that's a perfect way to wrap this bad boy up because that was a wonderful sort of summation of everything that we just covered really to a point of which you've got opportunity out there, ladies and gentlemen. You have the opportunity right now. We probably are at the most exciting period we've ever been in our modern day world or possibly humankind ever. Never has there been more opportunity. You can start a business from the home, from your home on a laptop. I mean, you can send currency across the world, not quite so much in an instant, but very, very quickly through digital assets. It's very clear what the issues in our world are today. So if you are a young entrepreneur, if you are not even young, but an entrepreneur, You've got the ability to do whatever it is that you need to do. So go out there and have a crack. But before you do that, make sure you get across and you listen to the Breaking Banks podcast presented by the wonderful Brett King, who is the founder and executive chairman of Movement. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Brett. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy. Uh, look, it's, it's my pleasure and thanks for the opportunity. And um, yeah, see you later, mate. Excellent, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. And uh, you keep warm out there in, uh, in cold New York, my man. Yeah, we just had six inches of snow last night. so It's hot and muggy, sticky here in Sydney. But anyway, we'll leave you to it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Bye for now. The Trader Cobb Crypto Podcast is hosted by Craig Cobb. All Trader Cobb courses, products, and tools can be found at tradercobb.com because experience matters. Thank you.